0: As we continue our series in the book of Philippians, which is a letter the Apostle Paul wrote to a particular church at Philippi, as he himself was in prison suffering for the gospel, he called the church to joy in Christ, even in the midst of their own difficult circumstances. So we're taking that call as applied to us as well. We want to be joyful Christians. And as we continue in this letter, we, get, we come to a passage that can be easily overlooked, as something very specific to the Philippian church and thus not as relevant to us. Paul is addressing specific people. He calls them by name. He's talking to Euodia and Syntyche. He mentions Clement. He mentions this mysterious true companion. And it's easy to look at that and say it's just a Philippian issue and kind of move past it. But how does it relate to us today? His concern, Paul's concern, is Unity. He's applying it to a specific situation in Philippi, but this concern for unity is a very relevant topic for the church today. The apostle calls on you Odia and Syntyche, two mature believers, in fact leaders in the church who apparently have some sort of fallen out. We actually don't know at all what happened. But he calls them to agree in the Lord, to agree in the Lord. And I want to spend our time this morning to explain what is meant by Paul's phrase, agree in the Lord. This is not just agree, this is agree in the Lord, it's different. To agree in the world is different than agreeing in the Lord. This is distinctly Christian agreement. And so Christian unity is different from the unity in the world. And so I want to latch on to that phrase like a, like a dog to a bone today, okay? And, and spend our time just, just knowing at it and trying to figure out what Paul means by this distinct Christian unity, distinct Christian agreement. What does it mean to agree in the Lord? I'm going to offer you five explanatory statements about our agreement in the Lord Jesus Christ. So number one, to agree in the Lord means to agree for the sake of the Lord. To agree in the Lord means to agree for the sake of the Lord. Now, as you read these verses, I, I hope that you can feel the force of Paul's appeal. He says, I entreat you, I entreat Syntyche. He's repeating it. He's, he's talking to each believer in this disagreement. Paul has already called for unity in general earlier in, the, in the, the same letter. Maybe that's something the Philippian church was struggling with. So if you look at Philippians 2, verse 2, Paul says, "...complete my joy by being of the same mind." Being of the same mind is the same word that's translated agree in our text. So he's saying, "...complete my joy by agreeing, by being of the same mind." having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. That's the general call to unity. That was already, already done earlier in the letter. Now it's specific. He mentions names. I entreat you, Odia. I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Now general calls to unity are important. I think it's really good for us to be singing songs that proclaim our unity in Christ and say that we are to agree with each other That part of being a Christian is part of being a Christian in a community with other Christians. And Christians in general don't disagree or don't oppose general calls to unity. We all say, of course, it would be great to be united. Even in our divided culture today, everybody laments the division, right? Even those who participate in the division, they lament it. They're saying, wouldn't be great for us to be together as one. But those are general calls. And often we we think of unity as this abstract, general goal. And here Paul is naming names. Because unity is never really general. It's never really abstract. It's always a matter of specific people agreeing with each other in the Lord. Unity is always a matter of euodia and syntyche. And so Paul having generally confronted their disunity, now is talking about the specifics. And he's saying if you want to be of the same mind, if you want to have the same love, if you want to agree with each other, specific people need to deal with their issues. Euodia needs to agree with Syntyche. They have to come together in the Lord. So why is unity so important to Paul? Why is he not holding back from mentioning names? Now this is unusual for Paul. Sometimes he mentions names, but he's not quick to do that. He often speaks in in kind of general terms. But here, he's he's not holding back from mentioning specific names. Why is unity so important to Paul? The answer is simple. Unity is important to Paul because unity is important to Jesus. For us to agree in the Lord means to agree because of Him, because it's important to Him for His sake. Look with me at John 17. This great prayer that Jesus prays before he is arrested and executed. Notice what he's praying for, John 17, verses 20 and 21. This is Jesus himself in the the agony of imagining his death, praying for this. He says, I do not ask for these only, for his disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, for all of us that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus is praying for the unity of the church. One of his final prayers, one of his final desires is for the church to be one, not just the immediate disciples, but all that would come after them, all of us, that we would be one that we would agree in the Lord. And so for us to tolerate division and discord among Christians is to go against the expressed will of our Savior. I mean, it may seem like a no-brainer if we put it this way, right? The Lord wants unity, so we want unity too. It may seem like a statement that at another church we would hear many amens to. But then you think about particulars of that, and then you say, it's not just a general call to unity, not just a general prayer for everybody. Jesus is praying for specific people to get together, to agree in the Lord with each other. This is not just general, this is specific, it's not just abstract, this is very concrete, it's relationships with, from one Christian to another. And this is why Paul is mentioning names, because we need to move from the realm of general unity to the unity between Euodia and Syntyche. Is there someone you need to reconcile with? Is there someone I need to reconcile with? Are you holding a grudge against someone? Jesus wants you to agree with them in the Lord. For His sake, will you do that? Secondly, we agree in the body of the Lord, in the church of the Lord. To agree in the Lord means to agree in the body of the Lord, the church. Now, this letter, like other letters that Paul wrote to specific churches, specific congregations, would have been read publicly at a church gathering, perhaps on Sunday morning, perhaps at a prayer meeting, perhaps at a special gathering of the Philippian church. Paul's letter would be read by someone to the whole church, and so Paul expects that both Euodia and Syntyche would be there when the letter is read to the church because he knows they are both committed to their church. There's an expectation that they have not left the church because of their disagreements. They're still functioning in the same body. They still are going to be there at worship when the letter is read and they will hear their names, which, by the way, that would perk you up a little bit, right? When you see your name in the book, not just in the book of life, but in the book of exhortation, in the book of, of, of telling you to, to change, to shape up. But Paul is expecting them to be there. He's expecting that they did not leave the church, but they are there and they need to work it out. And by the way, personal disagreement, according to some surveys that, that have been done, Personal disagreement is one of the major causes of Christians leaving their particular church and switching churches or stopping uh, going to church altogether. It's personal disagreement that's never worked out. And Paul just doesn't tolerate that. He expects that Euodia and Syntyche would be in the same church and they would work out their disagreements in the context of the relationships they already have. Now, here's the clear implication of this passage, that our disagreements are to be worked out in the community of our local church. Not on social media, but in the community of our local church. This is a crucial point to understand in our consumer-driven culture because we've been conditioned by our culture to say, if this doesn't fit me, I'll just find something that does. If this doesn't work, there's something better for me. I'll just choose another product. But this is not how the New Testament understands church. We are not to seek people that we agree with in another church. We are to seek agreement with people in our own church. Now, there are legitimate biblical reasons to leave a church. There are. But personal disagreement is not one of them. And yet, this is what most often happens, that people leave over a personal disagreement. Now, furthermore, unity is not just a pursuit of those who are in conflict. you and Syntyche, they're addressed, but somebody else is addressed here too. It should be the pursuit of those who are part of the same congregation. Now look at verse 3. Paul says, Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women. Paul is recruiting a mediator, another believer in the Philippian church to facilitate reconciliation between Euodia and Syntyche. Yes, he's addressing Euodia. Yes, he's addressing Syntyche. But he's also addressing this true companion. Now, who is this true companion? I'm going to disappoint you and tell you I don't know. And nobody knows. And you will read commentaries that will have wild theories of who this person is, including Paul's wife, who is also Lydia. Lots of stuff. But we don't know. Nobody knows. The Philippians knew, though. Paul knows, and he's referring to a specific person in that congregation, his partner in ministry, the true yoke fellow, somebody who's partnered with him in leadership and in ministry, somebody whom the church knows, and Paul knows, and he's saying, you help them. You make sure that they listen to this exhortation and this conflict is resolved. So when they read it, when the church read this letter, they knew who Paul was talking about. And so unity in the church is everyone's pursuit. So when you know there are two believers that are disagreeing with each other and they're, they're fighting, they're holding grudges against each other, you can't just leave it up to them. It's our job as the church. It's the job of other believers, other mature believers, other leaders to facilitate reconciliation, to help people agree in the Lord. A story is told about a great revival in Western Canada. It began in 1971. I think it's one of the lesser known revivals, probably. It happened, it started at Ebenezer Baptist Church in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. It's fun to say. Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. It was preceded by two years of an increased emphasis on prayer. As it often happens, you know, revivals come often after a long time of praying. So, in this particular church, a pastor of the church, uh, Bill McLeod, was burdened for prayer, and he started organizing prayer events. They did a prayer wheel where people took 15 uh, portions of the day and 15-minute portions of the day to pray, so there's prayer around the clock he's encouraged attendance to the prayer meeting, and so he's been promoting this prayer. People are starting to pray, and the Holy Spirit starts affecting the church. And then they host some evangelistic meetings, um, and something happens. God begins to work. First, in the lives of people in the church, this is crucial, that God the Holy Spirit always starts with the church. Revivals don't come from outside the church, they come through the church. The church is actually re-energized. People that have been going to church that were never saved now are saved. People who uh, were at odds with each other now are reconciled, and it comes through the church and then it spreads onto the community. So this is what, what happened. On the second night, I'm going to read this account. On the second night of these evangelistic meetings in the church, God began to work in a prominent family in the church. Irma Dirksen was one of the pillars of the church along with her husband, Sam, who was a deacon. This is a, this is a family in leadership. She had been praying for her church, her city, and her country while ignoring her own spiritually barren condition. She struggled under the heavy load of a critical spirit. There were people in the church she didn't like. She wouldn't even speak to Sam's brother, Arnold, who was also a deacon. On that second night, Irma went to the altar where she faced up to the deadly sins that were destroying her own inner life. And that night, Irma accepted the fact that Christ had died for her self-life. By faith, she claimed the power of the Holy Spirit. She left the altar radiant with joy, and rather than waiting for others to apologize to her, she went to them and asked their forgiveness. For her, the Christian life was, as some say, a whole new ballgame. Sam, her husband, was not moved by Irma's decision. He had begun to doubt whether God ever answered prayer. His 13 year old feud with Arnold, his brother, both deacons in the same church, was so bitter that for two years they had not even spoken to one another. This is the same two years that the church is in prayer for revival, and yet you have two deacons that can't talk to each other. That's not unusual in Bible-believing, revival-seeking churches. But this is what happens. They, they were, these two deacons were actually arguing and split apart over the music program of the church. Again, not unusual in our churches. Sam had lost all hope of being reconciled to Arnold. However, one night, Arnold went to the basement with the pastor and another deacon. Sam was invited to join them, and he asked his brother to forgive him. Well, it's about time, Arnold snapped. However, God broke Arnold's arrogant spirit after the pastor and the deacon prayed. He confessed his sins and cried with a broken heart. The brothers hugged each other as they both wept and asked for forgiveness. And they returned to their waiting families who immediately shared the unity and love the brothers now possessed. This is the beginning of the revival. Because God, the Holy Spirit, worked in Euodia and and Sam and Arnold and brought them together in the church basement. I love the idea of these two deacons, right? Two brothers feuding with each other for years. Thirteen years they've been at odds. Two years they haven't even spoken to each other. And God brings them to the church basement. And he places a pastor and another deacon. And they're praying over them. And God breaks their hearts and unites them. And a revival starts. This is how it happens. The Spirit works in Sam and Arnold, in Eodia and Syntyche, and prompting true companions like Irma and Pastor Bill and that other deacon to facilitate unity in church basements. Do you need to reconcile with someone in this church? Are you a true companion who can help bring two people together again? Number three, to agree in the Lord means to agree with the attitude of the Lord. To agree in the Lord means to agree with the attitude of the Lord. Look at Philippians 2 5. Have this mind, which is the same word as agree in our text, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Paul says if you are to agree, you need to have the same mind, the same attitude as Jesus has. So, what kind of mind or attitude? Is it let's keep reading Philippians two six who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In other words, Paul says, for us to agree in the Lord. We need to have the same mindset, the same attitude as Jesus has, which means that for us to agree in the Lord is to exhibit the humility of the Lord. We are to agree with each other by emptying ourselves, as Jesus did, by serving others, by humbling ourselves, by sacrificing ourselves. That is how unity is achieved in the church. We are to have the same attitude as the Lord has. Agreement in the Lord is not the same as agreement in the world. Those are very different pursuits. In the world, you seek agreement by proving your point. You just want to be smarter than your opponent. You expect that the other person will see it eventually. They'll see it from your perspective and they will agree with your position. But in the Lord, well, it's it's very different. We give up our desire to be right. We sacrifice our pride. We see others as more important than ourselves because this is the attitude of Jesus. A church can pursue unity in a worldly way. We can simply pick certain positions as a church and only welcome people who agree with these positions. We can declare that no true Christian can disagree with us. As people have said, Christians have said that. Christians have said that publicly. If you don't agree with me on this position, you're not a Christian. And then we can become a church that is known not for our commitment to the gospel of Christ, but for our particular stance on other secondary issues. The gospel is primary. The gospel is worth fighting for. But there are lots of other issues that are important, sure. Do we need to think through them in a biblical way? Absolutely. We need to have conversations. We need to study the Scriptures to figure out what the right position is. But all the while knowing that godly people may disagree on this. And so in humility, we come together and agree in the Lord with the same attitude that Jesus has. The gospel is primary. That's the foundation of our unity, and we need to be known for our commitment to the gospel. But it requires humility to put other issues in the category of the non-essentials. But if we pursue the way of worldly unity, we can become a Trump church, a social justice church, a hymn church, a homeschooling church, a King James-only church. There's a number of issues that we can simply attach to ourselves and say, this is us, this is who we are, we're going to take our stand here, and if you disagree with us, you're just not welcome here. That is not agreeing in the Lord. To agree in the Lord is to say, yes, we're going to talk about these issues. We're not going to avoid conversation. We're going to look at these issues in light of the gospel, absolutely, but we're not going to divide over these issues. We're not going to define ourselves by these issues. We're going to define ourselves by the humility of Christ. Agreement in the Lord does not mean uniformity, but it does mean humility. Humility only happens when you have differences. If you don't have differences, there's no need for humility. And so uniformity is actually an enemy of the gospel. It's an enemy of true humility in the church. Now let me show you from Scripture how it works. Galatians three twenty-seven and 28. In Galatians 3, and there are many other passages like that, Galatians 3, 27, Paul says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Those who put on Christ can experience unity, However, their differences are not erased. Have you noticed that Paul frequently draws distinctions between men and women in his letters? He doesn't look at men and women as exactly the same because we're not. Have you noticed that Paul addresses masters and slaves differently in his letters? Jews and Greeks are not to lose their distinct ethnic identities in Paul's letters. He's not erasing those differences. And yet, all these groups are to function as one in the church, in the diversity of the church, because they have put on Christ and his humility. This is the model of the New Testament church. It's not to separate and say, you guys all agree, so you just be here in this church. And you all agree, but you disagree with them, well, why don't you just stay here? That's not how Paul teaches about the unity of the church. He's putting them all together and he's saying, you're all different, you're all distinct. And it's good that you are different and distinct. But now put on the mind of Christ. And agree in the Lord together. Not in uniformity, but in humility. And as we think about our own church, and our pursuit of ethnic and racial and economic diversity in our own church, that's one of our great goals. We would love to see our church reflect our community better. In all the diversity that we see in our community, we want to see that diversity more in the church. But as we do that, we are not at all saying that everybody has to be the same, or somehow we're all going to agree on on the same culture, that we're all going to leave our differences at the door. That's not what we're saying. We want to keep those distinctions. We want to keep those differences, because we are different, and there's glory in difference. There's value in difference. But as we come together, we come together in humility of Christ and saying we can worship because we worship the same Jesus, not because we worship in the same way. We can be together, we can agree in the Lord because we have put on the Lord Jesus and we are one in Him. So my encouragement to us as a church is to continue talking about difficult issues in humility. Let's not avoid conversations about race, politics, the pandemic, but let's have these conversations with the attitude of Christ so we can agree in the Lord. Number four, we agree in the Lord based on the work of the Lord. To agree in the Lord means to agree based on the work of the Lord. And in verse three, Paul reminds the and Syntyche, along with others, that their names are in the book of life. Because Jesus died and rose again in their place, they've been accepted by God, and their names have been entered into the heavenly register. In other words, Jesus has reconciled them to God forever, and it's based on His work on their behalf that they are to seek unity with one another. This is really important. The gospel unites us based on what something Jesus has done for us. As we come together, we realize that Jesus has died for all of us. Jesus has risen for all of us. Jesus will make sure that all of us will be in God's kingdom forever. Listen to Dietrich Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who wrote about the unity of the church. He says, Christianity means community through Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ. No Christian community is more or less than this. Whether it be a brief single encounter, or the daily fellowship for years, Christian community is only this. We belong to one another only through and in Jesus Christ. What determines our brotherhood is what that man is by reason of Christ. Our community with one another consists solely in what Christ has done to both of us. This is true not merely at the beginning, as though in the course of time something else were to be added to our community. It remains so for all future and for all eternity. I have community with others, and I shall continue to have it only through Jesus Christ. The more genuine and the deeper our community becomes, the more will everything else between us recede. The more clearly and purely will Jesus Christ and His work become the one and only thing that is vital between us. We have one another only through Christ, but through Christ, we do have one another, holy and for all eternity. The biblical understanding of unity is based on our common salvation by Jesus Christ. We can agree in the Lord because the Lord has saved us, because He lived a perfect life for us, because He died on the cross for us. Because He rose again for us, because He intercedes for us now, praying for our unity, because He is coming again, we can agree with each other. Look at Philippians 4, verse 1, just one verse previous to our text. Paul says that he loves the Philippians. He longs for them. They are his joy and crown. Why does he talk like that? Because he looks at them through the lens of what Christ has done for them. This is eschatological language, meaning the language of the future, the language of what will happen to the believers, this idea of that someday Paul will appear before Christ and he will present the Philippians as his joy and his crown. And he will rejoice at what God has done for them in Christ. And the whole kingdom will rejoice that Christ has brought salvation to his people. Paul is in in that moment, and thus he feels this unity and connection to the Philippians. And he says, you are my joy, you are my crown before the Lord Jesus. How often we base our unity on where we come from instead of where we are headed in Christ. Because of what Jesus has done, our names are in the book of life Forever. We are forever secure in our relationship with God. And we will be welcomed into His eternal kingdom when Jesus returns. I am just a poor, wayfaring stranger. Traveling through this world below, there is no sickness, no toil, no danger in that bright land to which I go. What if we looked at one another through the lens of the gospel? What if we considered each other as our joy and our crown? We would be able to agree with one another in the Lord. I don't want to assume that everyone has experienced this work of the Lord on the cross in the empty tomb, so I want to call you, if you're not a believer, to consider what Jesus has done for you. Would you look at Him, your Savior in faith, would you look at the cross and realize that your sins are forgiven because of Jesus who died for you, sacrificed his, his own life for you so you would have life with God? Would you consider the resurrection, the great victory of the resurrection where Jesus overcame death for you, overcame your guilt, your sin, the world, the devil, so you would be with God forever? Would you come to Jesus today? And finally, my last point. We agree in the Lord, because we agree in light of the mission of the Lord. To agree in the Lord means to agree in light of the mission of the Lord. Notice how Paul describes Euodia and Syntyche, these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers. These two women are key leaders who have served with Paul and others in the advancement of the gospel. Labored side by side may also be translated as fought side by side, as gladiators in the arena. The implication is that the disagreement between Iodia and Syntyche is affecting the work of the gospel in Philippi. They used to work side by side, they used to labor and fight side by side with each other and the other co workers of Paul's. And yet now this disagreement is affecting the work of the gospel. So Paul says, you guys have to come together. You have to agree in the Lord so that the mission of the Lord can continue. Let me take you back to John 17, the verse that I read from Jesus' prayer for unity. John seventeen twenty, Jesus prays, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus is praying for the credibility of the message, credibility of the gospel, to be based on our unity. He's saying the world is going to look at you and if they see a united church, they will believe that the Father sent me to save them. The credibility of the gospel is connected to the unity among believers. Do you not think that our quarrels our discord, our splits, our problems with each other affect our gospel witness? Of course. Of course they do. We talk about the unity in our culture, and yet we cannot agree with each other in the Lord? That's a problem. Who's going to believe us? And so Jesus prays and connects the gospel with the gospel mission with our unity. When we forget that our mission is to call people to faith and life in Christ, we can easily turn on each other. And when we argue with each other about secondary issues and split over them, our mission suffers. When Chatham went through the disagreement about eight years ago, and when a group of people decided to leave, do you think it affected Our missionary presence in this community? Absolutely. I know that certain ministries had to stop, for example. I know that it took us years to rebuild and to heal. This is not insignificant. I mean, it certainly affects our relationships, our church. Yes, I mean, many people are still hurting, longing for reconciliation that some hasn't happened yet. Some of us are praying for that. We want that but it also affects what we can do in the community. It affects how united we are in our purpose and our mission. Of course it does. But what if we keep our eyes on our mission of making disciples of Jesus? What if we can focus on the main thing and preach the gospel and serve people and not get distracted on our squabbles? When World War I broke out, the war ministry in London, sent a coded message to one of their British outposts in a very remote colony. And the secret message said, war has been declared. Arrest all enemy aliens in your district. Soon after uh, this message, the war ministry received a message back. We have arrested 10 Germans Six Belgians, four Frenchmen, two Italians, three Austrians, and an American. Please tell us immediately who we are at war with. (laughs) The crucial point that was lost in the messages, they didn't tell them who declared the war. So they just arrested whoever they thought may be their enemy, just in case, without knowing who the enemy is. I think that's very true of the church. We focus on each other and we pretend we have this, these great enemies among us and we elevate secondary issues to the level of primary and we fight over it and we split over it instead of being committed to our mission of making disciples for Christ's sake. I'm going to end the sermon by simply calling you to unity. By simply calling us to agree in the Lord. If there's any disagreements that need to be worked out, work them out. If you hold in a grudge, let go. Go talk to that person. If you need to call somebody, if you need to meet with somebody, do that. If you know that other people are in disagreement, go help them. Mediate. Be the true companion for them. If there are deep-seated issues in your heart that need to be resolved, resolve them. Because we need to be united. We need to agree in the Lord for the sake of Christ who wants unity, in the body of Christ, with the attitude of Christ, with humility, based on the work of Christ for us, and in light of the mission of Christ. Let me pray, and I will dismiss you with a benediction. Our Father, we are so grateful for this clear teaching of Scripture, one of many, many passages where you call us to unity. And yet we acknowledge that this unity is not the same as the unity in the world. It's not the unity that can be just achieved by our own power. This is the unity that can only happen when we submit ourselves to the Holy Spirit, when we prioritize the gospel, when we give up our preferences, when we become humble before you and each other, when we stop pursuing ourselves. And that kind of work That kind of change only happens by the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, we are very cognizant today of the divisions in our culture. We don't want to participate in that. We want to be a united church in a divided culture. We want to be a united church, united in the Lord, united around the gospel, not just our preferences, but around the gospel A church that is brave enough to deal with our differences, to discuss them in humility. A church that is not hiding from these great issues around us, but a church that is nonetheless committed to unity and agreement in the Lord. Lord, Holy Spirit, would you help us? Would you convict us now, those of us who need to be convicted of our own participation in divisions? And discord and creating confusion convict us so we would once again pursue unity. We need humility from the Holy Spirit. And within that, there we ask for a revival. There we ask that as you work on us and as we become more united, as we become more humble, as we become more committed to the mission of Christ, that you would bless us with a revival. You would bless us with an awakening in our own community. We would see many in North County come to Christ so their names would be written in the book that our names are written in. Would you use us, Lord? Would you use your united church to bring peace to our community? We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.